in 2022, 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith. More than 2,100 churches were attacked. More than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. And almost 15,000 Christians became refugees. Now, in contrast, we live in a prosperous land. We know abundance. We know safety that relatively few people have ever known in the history of the world. When we think about the technology that we have in our pockets, technology we use to communicate, or numbers like child mortality, life expectancy, even what it looks like to be poor in the West, we can know that we are some of the most comfortable people who have ever lived. So a problem arises. When you read your New Testament, Jesus and the apostles Paul and Peter promised that we would suffer for our faith. If we're not persecuted, why not? Are we doing something wrong? Are we maybe not Christian enough? Am I asking the wrong questions? Maybe instead of worrying, we should thank God for the rare peace and prosperity that we get to enjoy in this age. I'm not actually sure what the full answer to this dilemma is. It may be a little bit of both. If we call ourselves Christians and act like the world, we need to deny ourselves. We need to pick up our cross. We need to follow Jesus and trust that in the process, he will use our lives for his purposes. Paul also talks about knowing how to live in abundance. He says this in Philippians 4, verse 12. And so even in a world of comfort and abundance, we still need to be learning how to live in a Christian manner in the context that we find ourselves. In our place and time, being a Christian does come with its own set of difficulties. The more developed and wealthy a society becomes, the more people become independent. Their perceived need for God disappears. The trend is that wealthier countries are more secular. Unfortunately, they also seem to have higher levels of anxiety. And so if persecution, poverty, lower levels of anxiety, and faith in Christ all seem to appear together, perhaps there is value in God's economy in, with persecution. Persecution is not something we, that should be sought after, should not be avoided at all costs either. But when it comes, when persecution does come, a text like Acts 5 teaches us how we can remain faithful to Christ. In Acts 4, so just one chapter earlier, we've already read about persecution. So I kind of call this message Persecution Part 2 because two weeks ago I kind of gave the same message. 
Um, I told someone this, they asked if I wrote different words. I said yes, but it, it is more or less the same message. It appears twice in Acts so far. Persecution fits in Luke, the author. It fits in his intentional theological presentation of the early Christian church's history. What we learn from persecution in Acts is that no threat can hinder God from expanding his kingdom. We also learn how to face threats and continue our mission when persecution comes. My sermon in one sentence, Acts 5, 17 to 42, teaches the reasons, the opportunities, and the futility of persecution. So we're going to look at those one by one. First, we look at the reasons for persecution in verses 28 to 33. According to Acts 5, 17 and 18, the high priests and the Pharisees arrested the apostles. That's the introduction to our account. There's an arrest. They were already arrested in Acts chapter 4, and this pattern shows that God's church will be opposed. It will be persecuted. You could ask, why go to the trouble of persecuting a religious movement that means no harm to anyone? According to Philippians 2, if you're a Christian, you ought to seek other people's interests before your own. If we all live that way, why would people who don't agree with the message not want everyone to believe in this Christian message so that everyone would bless them? Why go to the trouble of persecuting a religious movement that means no harm to anyone? Our text offers at least two reasons which are strong emotions, shame and rage. First, we look at shame in verse 28 and 30. So far, when Peter presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, he has not yet failed to accuse his hearers of being guilty of Christ's death. He did it in Acts 2.23, 3.13, 4.10. He does it again in our text. He's accusing his hearers of being guilty of Jesus' death in Acts 5, verse 30. Shame occurs when others accuse us or when the voice in our heads accuses us of things. About the apostles, the high priest says in verse 28 that they fill Jerusalem with their teaching and they intend to bring this man's blood on us. And so they understand the apostles are accusing them of something severe. The Christian message is offensive. If the Christian message is true, then these Jewish rulers, religious leaders understood that they were guilty of something severe. They were guilty of killing the God they claimed to worship. There is no higher, more severe accusation that one could make. And these accusations are shame-inducing. A second reason behind the persecution is rage in verse 33. Already in the previous chapter, in Acts 4.25, this persecution of Christians was connected with rage when the early church connected persecution with Acts 2, oh, sorry, with Psalm 2, 
that speaks about the nations raging against the Messiah. But in verse 33 in our text, following Peter's gospel presentation, the high priests and Pharisees were furious and enraged. With rage comes the decline in our ability to reason and also violence. Rage leads to yelling, screaming, sometimes physical violence. So some of us, all of us maybe have known that in our own lives and it proves true here as well. And these emotions of shame and rage are still reactions to the gospel today. Some people oppose Christianity because it is offensive. The Christian message calls everyone a sinner. And it's not Christians on one hand, sinners on the other. We are all sinners. This is something, a pill you need to swallow. We need to accept that we are sinners. This is very offensive, even unacceptable to people who have built their identity on being a good person. The voice of shame is that we're not good enough. We're unworthy of love. We're unworthy of acceptance. Some try to silence this voice by performing for acceptance. And the gospel teaches that our performance is not the answer. The gospel is offensive in that it insists that we are all sinners and only by confessing our sin and trusting in Jesus will forgiveness be found. Okay, talking about sin on a Sunday morning, I want to respect that it is your weekend. Um, and so, yes, this, this topic is heavy. But being called out as a sinner when you know you are one and are hiding can also be freeing. When we admit that we are sinners, we, we remove a huge burden from our shoulders when we trust in Christ's righteousness rather than trusting in our own or what we may be able to achieve one day. Those who cry out to God and own their sin find that vulnerability in confessing our sins allows us to experience more intimacy with God and also with each other. What an amazing feeling when you confess your sins to someone and they embrace you. So now they, they, they love you, not just the pretend you, but the, the real you with some of the darker parts of your story that you have um, invited them in. Being honest about our sin allows us also to celebrate Christ's death and become free from the shame that we experience. Anyone who rejects the gospel because of their shame is guaranteed to keep living in their shame, isolated from anyone who tries to get too close to the darker parts of their lives. The nations also continue to rage today against the Messiah and the Christian message. Christianity is dangerous for repressive regimes. The statement, Jesus is Lord, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, meant Caesar is not Lord. So Jesus is Lord is a revolutionary statement with political implications. It's not hard to see why the Caesars of today find this undermining to their authority and find it intolerable. 
Chinese communist regime is threatened by the Christian message. Vladimir Putin in Russia limits evangelism activities by non-Orthodox Christian groups. Brutal regime of Eritrea continues to persecute Christians as does North Korea. Anger and rage is the reaction to when someone wants to tear down your life's work. This is true for governments, Christianity calls out, and also individuals who do not want to submit to God. A state serving its best interest by enacting violence will be rejected by Christians. The Christians' highest allegiance to the kingdom of God that knows no cultural or physical boundaries, and that includes all kinds of people. The threat, then, of Christianity leads to both shame, the offensive message, but also rage, as this movement of people will not want to participate in a state's um, violent endeavors or or seeking to, to oppress people. So we see that there is persecution. It's still alive and well today. Now we're going to see that it offers opportunities. We see, uh, secondly then, persecution offers opportunities to witness in verses 18 to 41. The first opportunity from the oppression is in our text is to witness the power of God through a miracle. Read about that in verses 18 through 24. And so in verse 18, the apostles are arrested. Then in verse 19, the angel of the Lord opens their prison doors. This miracle bore witness to the power of God. We see that when the officers were sent to fetch the prisoners in verse 22, they reported that the doors were locked, the guards were still on the outside, but there was no one left in the cells. And we read in verse 24 that the result was they were greatly perplexed. A second opportunity from the persecution is for the preaching that follows the miracle in verse 20. So the angel instructed the apostles to return to the people and speak in verse 20, all the words of this life. Had to look that up in a commentary. A commentator suggests it's they're proclaiming the message of salvation. And so what we see when they escape the prison, instead of going off in hiding, they return to the most public place in town. They go to the temple and they continue to teach, which leads to a third opportunity from persecution when they're caught in the temple. And then Peter's going to preach the gospel in verses 26 to 31. So verse 26, the apostles are found teaching in the temple They're brought back before the council. Verse 28, the council reminds them of what they told him a chapter earlier, where they were told not to continue speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. So clearly they have disregarded that. They warn them, we're going to obey God rather than man. And we read that now this teaching of Jesus has filled all of Jerusalem. Verse 28, Peter reminds them again that he will obey God rather than man. In verse 29, and I spoke more about that when we addressed chapter uh, 4. And so, and then he transitions into preaching the gospel. 
So now, in Peter's gospel presentation, there are three elements. He begins in verse 30, accusing the rulers of being behind Jesus' death. So he begins with their sin, and then he turns from what they did to what God has done. Verse 31, he shares that God raised Jesus from the dead. And thirdly, in verse 31, he offers the forgiveness of sins by saying, This Jesus whom you killed has now been raised from the grave. He's exalted at God's right hand and gives repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He is addressing priests mainly in this context. And if you skip one chapter ahead to Acts 6 verse 7, we read, The word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps some of the priests present there, hearing Peter's gospel presentation, were among those who would one chapter later uh, become Christians. A fourth Opportunity to witness under persecution is what we see at the end, in verse 41, when the apostles rejoice in their suffering. Following Peter's sermon, one of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, warns his fellow Pharisees that this movement could actually be from God. The apostles are first beaten, then released. We read in Acts 5:41 that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy of being dishonored for the sake of the name. Don't let verses like this become... uh, May these verses continue to stand out when we read them. This is not normal behavior. So from all of these opportunities, we draw a few applications for us today. First, uh, a persecution is always an opportunity for witness. Persecution reveals where our trust truly lies. Clearly here, the apostles place their faith in Christ rather than in comfort. Our faith is made visible through our obedience to God rather than man when these wills are conflicting. When we are threatened with hurt, discomfort, potential embarrassment, affirming Jesus and the good news shows the watching world that Jesus and their salvation is of greater value to us than even our own well-being. Finally, remaining joyful during persecution may also be one of the greatest forms of witness of them all. When we are so anchored in the gospel, when we understand our lives through the lens of the biblical story, when we are deeply rooted in a Christian community, when hardship comes, it will not take away our joy. We will instinctively know, as Paul says, that the suffering of the present day has nothing compared to the glory that awaits us from Romans 8, 18. Peter also wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's First Peter 4, 12 and 13. If we follow Jesus and Jesus suffered, suffering then confirms that we are following him. It confirms that we are united with Christ because we are united with Christ and Jesus went from suffering to glory. We can also rejoice in our suffering, knowing that we will go from suffering to glory. And so rejoicing in suffering is the proclamation of the glory of Christ that is yet to be revealed. Thirdly, we see that persecution of the church is futile. Persecution cannot and will not stop the expansion of God's kingdom. It is in the midst of the persecution that one of the persecutors, Gamaliel, tells his fellow council members, if this movement is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And he is right. Persecution cannot hinder God's message, uh, God, the mission of God. Acts 5.42, this was how the text ended. Following the persecution, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So this is the result of their persecution, even more teaching about Jesus than before. We call Marta those who die for a cause or their faith. The word Marta comes from the Greek word, which means to witness. So those who endure persecution bear witness to the value of their message. They communicate through their death that it, it is more, this message is more precious than life itself. Early in church history, a man named Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Beautiful imagery. When Christians die, seeds grow. More people hear about the good news. Despite persecution, we see this as well in our day and age. There are Christians who meet in North Korea, Eritrea, Somalia. Christianity has grown more in China, who is where Christ, the Christian message is not welcome, than anywhere else in the world despite this persecution. To conclude, our text shows that persecution and witness lead to more witness and more persecution. It seems maybe where, where we find ourselves that persecution is low and witnessing is low. Not all periods in church history and all parts of the world will have the same amount of fruitfulness. In the meantime, I keep coming back to this. We stick to Acts 2, 41 to 47. These are the simple activities that a church practices. We come together we're devoted to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to breaking the bread, which we will do, to the prayers. We practice depending on God in a self-sufficient society that sees no need for God 
while it experiences burnout, anxiety, and loneliness like it never has before. Rather than becoming like the world and just gathering on Sunday for worship, we need to be we need to be the church, be in each other's homes, enjoy hospitality, get to know each other's needs, to pray for one another, to bless one another, and then invite outsiders to this movement made up of people completely transformed by the gospel. We can be thankful that we live in a wealthy, prosperous era in Western Europe, but we don't just have to wait for persecution to come. Picking up our cross means we voluntarily make choices today to deny ourselves of some of things, uh, to deny ourselves freely, willingly, joyfully in order to serve others. One of these choices can involve loving those who do not like you. This is an act of self-denial that puts you in a similar situation you would be forced to be in if you lived under persecution. There is always someone to bless in this world, someone who does not like you, whom it would be easier not to bless. Martin Luther King Jr. was a leader in the civil rights movements in the United States. He wrote, to our most bitter opponents, we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, we shall still love you. Bomb our houses and threaten our children, we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer one day. We shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. (laughs) Let's pray.